Hi, listeners. Welcome to the She Speaks Life podcast, a weekly encouragement where we share our God stories. I'm your host, Jamie Elizabeth, and I am so glad you are spending time with us today to listen. Hi, friends. Today, I am so honored to have Jeannie Lopez with us. Hi, Jeannie. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I am so excited and happy that you reached out to me uh, via Facebook. Thanks, Facebook. And (laughs) I want to share your incredible story with us. You told me you have experienced quite a lot in this world, but I'm sure that you have seen God's goodness also working in and through your life through all that. Excited and curious to hear how it was uh, growing up on the grounds of a Christian women's rehab facility to becoming one of the first women rappers to now serving in women's ministry and everything in between. I know you have a lot to share to encourage everyone. So I'd love for you just to start with that backstory, if you will, on, wow, living as a ministry kid on the grounds of a Christian rehab facility. So how was that? (laughs) Very, very (laughs) unique. I have lots of aunts and uncles and just diverse background of of people that uh, love me through various chapters that people wonder, like, how are you related to them? How's that an uncle? How's that an aunt? Well, God made it so on the grounds there. But the backstory behind the backstory is that both of my parents were reached through the ministry of David Wilkerson and Teen Challenge. So my dad was heroin addict on the streets of New York City. My mom was homeless. And actually, there's a book out about her life. She got to the point of selling her body for black tar heroin. So they found her on the streets. And my dad was David Wilkerson's Dean of Men. Uh, David Wilkerson would toss the van keys at him and say, go get us some people for church today. My mom was found there. And so she went through the program. They didn't have a program for women. And he took her in. She's Teen Challenge's first woman to have to go through the program because he didn't know what else to do with her. Once she was saved, then she served. Then her and my dad were married by David Wilkerson, who then ordained them and then sent them off to start kind of the sister ministry to Teen Challenge. Amazing. And I love how that one person changed your mom's whole life. Literally, I mean, where the enemy wanted generations to end, God stepped in, you know, used someone. And that's why it's always interesting to me when someone says, you know, I'm just one person. One person walked up to a cardboard box and spoke to one woman. And Mm. there's thousands across the country now that have been saved through that God moment. So it was a very unique upbringing in that we would be in the city on the weekends, 42nd Street, you know, gathering women to get them away from their drug dealers and the sex trafficking, all of that. We Mm -hmm. were up in Amish country in Pennsylvania, high up in in the mountains uh, with a dormitory. It could house 200 women and their children and it went nuts and grew very quickly. So that was founded in 1973. I was two years old, really around 71 is when the foundation for all that was being laid. I'm up there on the grounds there watching everything go up, this dormitory and girls coming in and all the bustle and hustle of everything going on. (laughs) David Wilkerson coming to check on things 
and how things are coming along and evangelists and ministers coming through and it's just a big, big buzz and a lot of excitement. And so we watched that. And I would say the downside for us kids, and it was my brother, Danny, my sister, Chrissy, myself, we have an older brother named Dondi. And so all of us, we had to kind of take the back burner to that and be the head of a ministry in the 70s. And my mom was the figurehead really for it because it was her book and her speaking engagements that were helping to provide the funds for the ministry. And so imagine a ministry in the 70s requiring about $35,000 a month to function. Right. Wow. That meant we didn't see her much. And so, no, she had to go out there and raise some funds and campaign, right? Constantly. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, she trusted a lot of people around us and really just had childlike faith, what was going on and everything's good. And say the unfortunate thing is that we were left in the care of women that abused us. Mm -hmm. I have so many, I told you that I, surrogate aunts that I love that helped me bake cupcakes for my birthday and make science fair projects. I had women with corn rolls and tattoos on their neck, you know, helping me make a volcano explode. And and I loved it. And I could never explain it to any, imagine I went to school with little Dutch children. And so I'd be like, yeah, Mama Pearl really helped me with this one. You know, they'd be like, Mama Pearl, you know, and sometimes they were allowed to come after school with me. And then sometimes I didn't see people for a long time because they did come home from school with me. Yeah. <laughs> and not, I didn't know not everybody ate dinner in a dormitory every night. And, you know, I would come in and just, I'd be half asleep and the teachers, what's going on? Is Oh, picked up some girls and, you know, there was a girl kicking heroin in my bed. I slept on the couch or, you know, a woman kind of writhing on the ground like a snake. But I would tiptoe over yeah. him, grab my school clothes, grab my violin and head out the door for school. <laughs> oh my gosh. And because you grew up with that, kind of normalize it because you don't really know any different. Exactly. I I really didn't know that everybody didn't live like that, but we would have a slumber party or what have you. And then a lot of talk on Monday about my sister and I, you know, we, we had a few that were allowed, but you know, we didn't have meals together like a normal family at all. I mean, and I didn't mind it. You know, I knew when it was dinner time, I'd hear the choir practicing and I'd smell dinner coming out of the dorm and I would grab my tray. I maybe would cut line here and there because I was the director's daughter, like those perks, but I just love that communal environment. I mean, that's how everything was. And so, you know, had its ups and downs. I would say the downs were that while my mom was gone, we were in the care of women, some of them that lost custody of their own children and now are responsible for Danny, Chrissy, and myself. My older brother was on the road with my mom. He was in his 20s. And so he was with her. And so the three of us, if we didn't eat our meal, we could be taken to the basement and whip. You know, one sitter came up with the punishment of sticking us in a tub of ice water mm-hmm. till we would agree to finish whatever it was we were gagging on and didn't want to eat. And, you know, I was the baby of everyone and the loudest mouth, but I would just say, wait till my mom gets back. You know, my mother, you know, wait till she gets back. And sometimes she came back so sick and tired that she went right to her room and slept for days. And so we were still in this person's care. And at times my grandparents had shown up and found whip marks on us and would tell my parents. And so this kind of happened off and on throughout the, the 70s. But, you know, we would frequently hear it's for the cause of Christ guys, you know, sorry that happened. And they'd get that person gone. They wouldn't be over our care anymore. But we just still it was just kind of like dust it off and keep moving. There are people out there that need our help. And so we kind of had this understanding, a subliminal understanding of 
we come second to the kingdom work that needs to be done. It's greater than us. It's greater than these marks on our body or difficulties we're having in school. And that had me off kilter very early to where my understanding of how much I matter or my health or what I think or want to say always had the mentality that it's not that important. Mm, Yeah, but... And because it's not only physical, you're getting emotional abuse too. So how old were you until you finally moved away? Like, okay, I've had enough living here. Well, you know, what occurred was conflict occurred there on the grounds. And it was overnight that we were handed a hefty trash bag. I was 12 turning 13. Now, mind you, again, all my first steps took place on this place. Everything, all my first experiences, only one school I'd ever gone to. And I remember that night just hearing conflict going on and being given this trash bag and just whatever you could fit in that, just fit in it. And I'm like, wait, I have a social studies project due tomorrow. Where are we going? I had an argument with my best friend on the grounds. Uh, Her parents were staff. And I had an argument with her over an Atari game we were playing. And I didn't know I would not see her face again for over 30 years. Wow. And this was the girl by my side, you know, every day, every night. And so tossed our things in that car and we were just driving and driving and not knowing where we were going. And And this was with your mom? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. So she decided... We're leaving, we're going. And were you a believer at this time? Where were you at spiritually? I'd say that I witnessed so much of, you know, God's power and then had so many amazing evangelists coming through. I mean, I don't know even if you know of Nikki Cruz, the book, The Cross and the Switchblade and speakers like that would just crash in our house, you know, so I got to always inquire and ask things. I mean, had a hard time sleeping with him in our house because I thought I didn't understand yet God's changing power and I remember or waking my parents up afraid that he was going to stab me in my sleep. he's like no no he's like no Jesus changed me and I would say Jesus changed I don't understand that so we had these quarterly baptisms and I would just watch these girls go under and watch them come up and see them look so transformed and different that at one service we were having I was at the very back of our gymnasium and they asked if anyone wanted to come up and I just I ran to the front I think I was about nine at that age at that time and I threw my hand up I went up there I'm, I'm like I want what I see happening every day around me, I mean, just the concentration of that kind of transformation, you could not be around it and not believe in the transforming power of Jesus. So I took that in. I knew it was real and I was evangelizing young. And then we would go in on the weekends and, you know, hand out tracts to people that my mom would instruct us, give this to that person under that box. And I'd look at her like, is it safe? She'd say, someone did it for me. We're watching. You're fine. Yeah. So, you know, it was ingrained, but it did require a moment of, am I going to take him in and accept him as mine? And I really did. I could not ignore what he was doing around me and all these people. I wanted some of that. So I for sure had him in my heart. Um, Mm -hmm. I will say that in these drives to wherever it was we were headed, the conflict had to do with them just not taking time off and wearing themselves down. And then the debate grew and, you know, things got weird. And here kids are just tossed in the middle of that. And we're having these conversations, just the kids, (laughs) us three, Mm -hmm. are we going back? Are we not? David Wilkerson being my parents' uh, spiritual dad, they reached out to him. He said, come down to Texas. I have a property there. Right now, I believe it's the headquarters for Youth with a Mission in Lindale, Texas. He had a house there for us. And we came down. David Wilkerson is how we're in Texas because it would be like if you were in New York today and you threw a, a dart at a map and it said Montana and that's where you live tomorrow. Mm, yeah. That's what Texas is to us. <laughs> we yeah. were like... Texas. You can relate. Yeah. Yeah. 
I know. So, well, yeah, we had lots of jokes about steer and cowboys <laughs> and uh, what the heck. And, and we land in East Texas, which kind of was the stereotype of Texas uh, that we expected. You know, there's this red dirt and, yeah. and exactly cowboys. And so we were there for a little while when ministry opportunities began to open up for my parents and they migrated into Dallas, I'd say by the time we hit junior high. Okay, so then your teen years all in Texas. And then you mentioned you're one of the first Christian rappers. So let's hear about that. How did you get into rapping and stuff? <laughs> yeah, so my brother Danny, he had a, a love of music and, and rhyming and all that. And actually it was because he was taking it down the wrong road. When we landed, it migrated towards more urban areas. Mind you, we still were half kids raised in Amish country and still half kids raised in New York. We didn't know exactly what we are. And we land in Dallas, in the Dallas area. And we go to school and didn't have the cool issues pants, whatever. And we're what you call New Yorkans, right? Puerto Ricans <laughs> born in New York. Oh, wow. um, and so in Texas, it was we weren't common that we had a different appearance. We had little mini afros. And it was like, what are you guys? And yeah. so with this, my brother used his mouth to protect himself. And so he started doing these battle rhymes that were kind of protecting him, I would say, like porcupine sticks verbally when he would get picked on over high water pants or an afro. And so a parent called our house one night and let them know that my brother sent their child home crying with this rap he wrote. And my mom said, you are going to your room and you will not come out until you turn that around to do something for the Lord with it. And he's like, there is, a, this is 1983, 84, uh -huh. maybe, you know, Run DMC was coming up, but there wasn't Christian rap that, that wasn't a thing yeah. <laughs> exactly that yeah. we said, oh, we'll just do like it. Like Luke Cray yet. These other Christian rappers, right? Not at all. Yeah. Not at all. So um, he went in and he started to do that. He, he started to integrate the roots that were in us. We were, I had already been involved in evangelism in New York City and seeing all these transformations. So mm -hmm. it was like, it just took a nudge for that to line up with the pen. And Danny started to get noticed. And Danny was doing this in the projects. He was doing it throughout Dallas. And someone heard him, got the attention of a record label. And so I find myself in the studio with him. I always wrote poetry to impress his girlfriends. <laughs> and I also wrote beats. I was uh, played the drums for church. So mm. when record execs came through and there's like, it would be great if a girl did this. My brother nudged me. I'm like, no, I, I, I write poetry. He said, you, you write, I mean, you do the beats for me on the drums and you write poetry. Come on, it's, it's not a big leap. I hesitated, but then, you know, I thought, this could be fun. This could yeah. be fun. We can mm -hmm. hang out. I get to be with my big brother. He's super cool now. He doesn't have the high waters and the afro. My friends think he's cool. This could bump me up a little bit. On the, yeah. and, and that's just kind of all of a sudden I'm doing it. And so I got a record deal and he was behind the production of the entire first project. I felt this is great. I'm just going to be under yeah. his wing. He was coaching me in it. We were off and running and the plan was to tour together. So cool. Then, yeah, October 6, 1990 happened. And so just to kind of give you, you know, the, the shorter version of it, I'll just say that we, we had really migrated into being involved in inner city ministry in Dallas. Mm -hmm. And so my brother, we, here we were again. Now we were Amish kids, half New Yorkers who landed in Texas, who migrated now to the Dallas area. And, you know, we attended school in the suburbs and everything. So we weren't like super hardcore inner city kids or anything. Realistically, I mean, we're more like PKs from the country that know city. So, right, right. Not living um, in it, but have experienced it. Yeah. 
Yeah. So when some people hear, oh, you know, D-Boy moved to the inner city of Dallas, that makes sense. But you got to understand his mother and his two sisters went with him apartment hunting because he wanted to be closer to the kids that he was working with. And we checked out apartments with him. My mom was very particular. I mean, and, you know, so she carried guilt for a little while. The fact that he was murdered outside of his apartment Mm. and he was taking kids home. One night, and uh, apparently, as he approached the kiosk to his apartment complex, an unknown assailant, still unknown mm. to this day, approached the passenger side of his car and one bullet through there. And uh, he made an attempt to drive himself to the hospital, it appeared, because he was right at the entry ramp there to the highway. But his car flipped, and they thought they had a drunk driver on their hands. And when they pulled him out, they noticed a bullet wound to his abdomen. Mm. And so, you know, he had no ID on him that night because he just quickly had left his apartment, thought he's coming right back, yeah. left his wallet there. And so he had been operated on, pronounced dead, and taken to a morgue as a John Doe mm. before I even woke up the next day. Before I woke up for work. And so I get a call. Everybody's looking for him. I'm like, oh, we joked. Hey, maybe Disciple Dan stayed out and partied or something. You know, we just joked because that wasn't him. It just sent us reeling. And it it landed me that day on the phone with the Dallas morgue, who was just, I hope their protocols have changed, but it was rather cold. I said, I don't know why I'm calling you. There was a card from the homicide department telling me to call this number. This was under the door at my brother's apartment. I don't know why I'm calling. And they asked if any relatives were unaccounted for. I said, my brother, but we know where he is. I mean, we're meeting up with them later today. And then they asked me to describe him. And then they said, you might want to send someone down here. Mm, so, so that person returned with a photo of him and I blacked out from there. Yeah. Destroyed his, I was all of 90 pounds and, and my mom let me know years later that she didn't get the deposit back on his apartment because I snapped and my little 90 pound self even got doors off of locks and mirrors shattered. It was a collision of, I'm looking at his toothbrush and his stubble in the sink. I hear his answering machine go off and someone is telling me he's dead somewhere. And that collision, it, it hit, I describe it as a physical crack that I feel occurred in my spirit, in my brain, it just all collided. I just blinked out. Wow, that is heavy, to say the least. I'm so sorry you experienced that. So how did you, you know, did you get angry with the Lord? I mean, how did that affect your relationship with God and your walk with Him? Did it affect you at all? A ton. I tell you, you know, I had learned to to skip through things and just kind of minimize them, even the abuse earlier. Right. Yeah. You know, we were whipped and had marks on it. People would hear that and just go, "What? Wait, what? You know, ice tub uh, bass, you know, that's horrible. Did you guys ever talk to him? Did you? No, we had to, we had to keep going, you know? And then you, you land into the, this scenario where it's like, you can't keep going. Mm -hmm. Everything stops. And I landed in a place where I just knew if I didn't reach up, I would die. Yeah. Right. I didn't reach up. And, yeah, at his funeral, first of all, I'll tell you that just leading up to these services and memorials, and I mean, it just ended up, his second CD was released three weeks after his death, but the first one had already gone out. He did not know that he was D-Boy Rodriguez, this rapper, because we were getting calls from all around the world. Wow. Every news channel was there. We had helicopters above his funeral, mm-hmm. um, reporters walking alongside us. So it was just so much insanity, and it was crazy. It, it was sad that in the midst of all that, I mean... To me, a day where I slept till it was dark was a productive day. And that's all I wanted every day was can, how 
many pills and you know, again, in my route, being a PK, we call it or whatever, I don't go purchase drugs, I don't go do this. So I would go to the grocery store and get, you know, NyQuil and take that with something just to how can I just make myself sleep? I'm thankful, you know, having had two parents that were heroin addicts, that Mm -hmm. there was never this redeeming power of the Lord and the shell that he grew me up in and the miracles and the things I saw were for this season. Because my reality, my relationship with him and what I know he's capable of, it never allowed me to reach for a needle or a joint or any, I just, he let me see what it looks like coming off of those things. Yeah. And right. so I never reached for him, but I, not to say my means of coping were healthy or any better. I'm just saying if that didn't end up my struggle and I don't discount those that it is because I can understand how one can get there and we have choices to make of are we going to reach for him? Or are we going to reach for something else? I reached mm-hmm. for sleep and denial and to self-medicating. In general, my thought was, how can an accident occur to where I don't have to commit suicide? Can I mm-hmm. jump in this hole and maybe they'll just pour dirt on me and, and I can be smothered and they'll all just think it was an accident. Or maybe I could accidentally land in front of a bus or mm-hmm. I had these just constant thoughts of just please just let an accident happen. Cause I don't know every, all the mysteries on the other side, mm-hmm. but my faith told me that not to end my life. That was God's to determine, but mm-hmm. I wanted it ended. And so how can I meet God halfway so that he can make me not here anymore? So I don't have to feel this because it felt I had known what I consider kind of courtesy grief before this, even the week before my brother's death, we were at a funeral together. And I actually had said to him, gosh, you know, we had grandpa die. I don't, I can't imagine because it was a young man at the front, his mother and sister crying. And my brother grabs my hand. He's like, I know, I know. And I just said, I don't know what I do. And then one week later at the same funeral parlor, my brother's body is being prepared. Wow. And it went from this courtesy of, I would always say my condolences or I'm so sorry for your loss Mm -hmm. to then when this inferno called grief becomes this hole inside of you that you cannot put out. Mm -hmm. It's a fire that will just burn until it kills you if you don't release it to God. Mm -hmm. And I could decide how long I wanted it to burn me. And I actually didn't mind it burning me, which sounds maybe twisted to some, but I felt like I let him down because I was asleep while he was being operated on. The brother that had scooped me up when I broke my arm, landed on my face. I was a tomboy. My brother to be around every corner to save me. I was tucked away in my bed when he was pronounced dead. And so I wanted punishment. I believe I purposely wasn't looking up because I wanted to hurt. Right. Like a self-affliction of guilt. A hundred percent. And it wasn't getting me far because one day was just turning into the next, turning into the next, turning into the next. And I'm just getting older. Right. Wasn't doing much about it. I wasn't not serving the Lord and I still loved him, had the utmost respect, but I felt like I could have this little contained fire of pain in me that I deserved. Mm. This was my mentality. And so I wasn't really releasing that. And I married my brother's roommate. Gosh, my brother was killed in October 1990. I got married in August of 91. Had my first child July of 92. My second one of July 95. And my third one by September of 99. Wow. So I just was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to build a life around this little thing. Sure. Like not take care of it, but just keep busy moving on life. But you still have things that you need healing for. Right. Let's keep moving. Because again, remember going back, Mm -hmm. we were taught 
let's get, that was bad, but we got to keep moving for the kingdom. Yeah. And so that's what I'm doing. That was really, really, really bad. And I think I'm scared for this thing to come out, but just don't have time for it. So my husband and I got involved in ministry and raising kids and having them involved in church and them and their activities. And then my health, I started to grapple with uh, chronic pain from a car accident I had as a teenager. All of a sudden, that's manifesting big time from my neck to my knees to my stomach to I had a good five surgeries in the early 2000s. And so I'm again, but I've got this, I'm going to contain all these little fires, right? And But yet what I thought I was containing, I really wasn't. And I look now that my mentality was, and I speak in analogies, as you know, I'm a storyteller, right? Yes, and a very beautiful one, which we're going to be hearing here soon. Thank you. Almost every other sentence out of my mouth will be an analogy. But I will tell you that I came to the conclusion that what I thought I was doing, I, I thought I was containing it, moving forward and being productive really in the kingdom. But it was more like a drone. You've seen on the news where we hear a school or a hospital was accidentally hit by this drone, Mm -hmm. you know? And some might say, well, for the greater cause, you know, we're in a war. They meant to hit this or they still got Mm -hmm. some of the bad guys. I learned over time that that's what I was carrying. I thought I was accurately utilizing the anger or the unforgiveness or the pain as needed if I wanted it Mm -hmm. to come out to protect me or to push somebody away. I Mm -hmm. thought it was accurate. But it pained me deeply when I realized that a lot of times on the other side of the door was a child of mine Mm -hmm. (laughs) hurting or holding a Mother's Day card or a birthday card or um, remembering that it's anniversary of my brother's death. And they drew just a little something to cheer me up. But I have my Mm -hmm. door locked because I'm thinking I'm containing it back here. And as long as I keep my my pain and this ugliness Mm -hmm. from them, I'm keeping their lives and their activities good. Compartmentalize where... God, you can't enter this room of our heart, but you can be in this room, but not this room. So when did you finally get the freedom? Gosh, I operated so well as half a person. Right. And it's been a journey. It just re- I'd say over the last five years of being really honest to go, now I'm a little nervous because if I operate at full capacity, what am I going to be like? <laughs> now I'm like, wow, I did all that. Like I'm really having to be honest because I appeared so functional. Not many people knew the chronic pain. I have a plate in my neck. I've had my knees operated on uh, one, two, three times, stomach twice. What I was functioning at appears so functional for all that I was juggling inside mm-hmm. and out. And now over the last four to five years, when I imagine a life of really, really functioning, it's hard for me to, to acknowledge how what little I was operating off of. And it makes me excited really for God's power to imagine he's still his anointing, his love for me. All of that even operated when I gave him 20% yeah. of me. People were still reached. I still did poetry. I still did music. And some might even be confused if they heard me or saw me somewhere in the 90s or 2000 went, hey, I was at that and I heard you and and it was great. I would just say them be excited. Mm -hmm. Be excited because if that was me not even letting them into every room, what's ahead of us? So I will tell you that right around 2013, 14, I crashed again because I could fly pretty well under the radar for a good block of time, mm-hmm. you know, five, 10 years, and then a crash can occur. And right around then issues attacked my marriage. The covering of that marriage is what I slid into right around the time of the murder of my brother. And it became my covering. It became my new place to operate yeah. out of. It, it was just better than the life I had to lose back in Pennsylvania, the life I had to lose with my brother. Let's move forward with this and make this whole 
new identity and run with it. And when that became shattered, because my husband had been juggling an addiction that I was not aware of whatsoever, and it shattered the last frontier I had that I was using to kind of certain rooms I was leaving the Lord out of. And that flung everything so wide open. I was terrified for what was going to come out. I was terrified because God was showing me when I was first weeping over that shattering, I said, I just needed just one thing to be good Mm -hmm. and untouched. Mm -hmm. (laughs) My childhood touched and messed up and then taken. My brother, best friend, protector, Mm -hmm. dead. My health, gone. Please, can I just have one thing that Mm -hmm. is good and just stays good? And so from that place, it was a new cry. Because now I'm being honest that I was even using these things as a covering. It was a new cry. And even in crying out to my husband one night, I just said, you know, I just want my soul back. And I was asking him for it Mm -hmm. back, my husband. And God right there caught me and went, I want you to hear what you were saying to him. You asked your husband to give you your soul back? Yeah. You're putting all your security in all the people. And we call it idolizing, kind of the Christianese term, but... It's whatever we're putting in the place of where God should be in our life as an idol. So I totally can relate when we put our husband in that place and they're human. They make mistakes. God's the only one that won't fail us. And so he'll allow certain situations to happen to show us, no, I'm your only one that you look upon as your sure footing, as your firm foundation, your security. I'm your refuge, your fortress, the only one that can love you unconditionally. You've got Mm -hmm. it exactly. And I tell you what, I didn't know really where to go with this stuff. And honestly, a lot of churches didn't right. know sure. what to do with me either. We're the people that show up and help in ministry. Yeah. We're just like, how do you now get to the point of, hey, so yeah, you know, the people that you have leading this group or that group, we need help. That's mm-hmm. takes a humbling. We landed at a church in Dallas that has a ministry called Regeneration Recovery. And again, this is someone who really just actually thought I knew it all. I mean, remember, I grew up in right. ministry, seen a lot, heard a lot, been a part a lot. So I was just like, ah, eh. you know, I sat mm-hmm. through a group and I'm like, that's good. But no, actually I'm here not because of me, for my husband. And, and every week I would just say, I'm not going back next week. Thanks, but I don't have those issues. So I'm good. But I wasn't getting any further when I would go back yeah. home. I actually would play back what I heard and just going, maybe I do have uh, heard someone one week say that they were really in recovery for fear of man. Mm-hmm. I just was like, fear of man? Can you break that down for me? And fear of man is really truly fearing man's opinion over God's, uh, what he says about you and your identity in him. So I started to do their book work and ended up, you know, making it through that program and leading a couple groups through and mentoring some women through the ministry too, which says a lot considering I, I literally let people know if I could make it through it. You think 12 months is so long and it's not, but if I can, anybody can, because I had tossed that book in the trash so many times. I'm not yeah. going back. And uh, one week my son brushed it off. It had coffee grounds all over it. He brushed it off out of the trash and he just hands it to me. He goes, mom, will you please finish something, mm-hmm. something for, yeah. for you? Just please. And sitting back and I dug in and things I told ladies as I led them through was, hey, don't ever do your book work in Starbucks because I landed on the lesson about idols (laughs) while doing my book work at Starbucks. And I had earphones in, I had my caramel macchiato chilling. It jumped out like a cereal box 
3D thing pops out at you. I couldn't speak because I had seen in my mind, idolatry being golden calves. Right. right? Yes. Until somebody tells you, uh, the modern day one is this. This is what the modern day idol looks like. And then you're like, oh, wow. Okay. Conviction in there. Yeah. Yeah. I'd rather point to a story in the Old Testament about them marching around with the golden calf than have to sit and tell my story about how I didn't want to deal with Mm -hmm. life and how I had my brother in a place where he was not just my brother, but my everything, my idol. And then I slipped when he was gone, slipped my Mm -hmm. husband there. And now I'm in a Starbucks and all of that has to come down. (laughs) I'm I'm not in my bedroom at home where I can (laughs) really let this all out. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, lots yeah. of tears. And my husband picked me up that day. He he picked me up. It was a rainy day. And I'm looking out the car and I have the Starbucks in my hand. He's like, so how was today? Did you get some? I, I just was yeah. like, I can't, I can't talk. And then I just said the words out loud. I said, I, th- I think I had my brother in the wrong place. I think I had you in the wrong place. And the next moment for me became one of fear because then I thought, what's life like with them not there and him there? Right. I, you now have to trust God and what he says is true, right? And I really thought I had been trusting him. I have saying about trusting him. I have led sure. groups trusting him. I have, I think I led devo- devotionals on uh-huh. trust. <laughs> this was jumping off a cliff. Yeah. My hands were sweating. Yeah. I was like, I don't think I can sing those songs the same mm-hmm. again. What will my whole life look like? And, you know, I will tell you that from there, a rebuilding occurred that feels so solid. I now know really the whole analogy about a house being built on sand, not analogy, but you know, the the parable of that, because I know now what a life anchored with him at the center of it feels like. It's not as scary. It doesn't shift. I'm not terrified of worst case scenarios in every corner, mostly that involved people I loved in the center of them Mm -hmm. dying. I mean, when you have been through what I went through with the murder occurring at 4.30 in the morning, I woke up like clockwork every single morning at 4.30 a.m. My eyes would pop open. Um, And so the fear and the anxiety and everything that would grow, because I mean, when you have an idol there, man, you have a whole lot to try Mm -hmm. and contain. Yeah. Um, You have a whole world that you're trying to be the the Lord over. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) And we're not wired yeah. for that. And and it was, a, that's a whole lot of world yeah. for me to try and that's lord over. That's a heavy burden <laughs> and, so, and it's tiring. Yeah. I'm kind of not God of the universe. Mm-hmm. So um, what will Jeannie's world look like if I hand what should be God, God's? And I just started to do it. I did do it gradually mm-hmm. and purposely. And then walking through that with women around so me. So good. Okay, so now here you are, and I'm so excited because you're going out there and doing these things that God is calling you to do. You're healed from the fear of people. You're growing in the whole obedience to saying yes to the things that he has put in your heart. And so I was hearing you say, okay, enough is enough. I'm going to start getting myself out there and doing those things that God's put in your heart to do for him. Yes. And you know what became important to me was looking for other women doing that. And I found your podcast. That's so amazing. Where did you find my podcast? I'm curious. (laughs) 
<laughs> so you're on a network of podcasters or something. You're mm-hmm. on a network. And so I was looking for where am I going to, if I do a podcast, where do I do it? And I'm just looking at different networks. I'm looking at different whatever. Then it led me to this network. And then it led me to seeing that they had an award one year. And then let me see, you got that yeah, for 2019, uh-huh. right? Yeah, I did. And that ah! was a gift from and- God. Completely. It was keep going. You're doing what you're supposed to be doing. <laughs> Affirmation. I loved it. And you know, God had put on my heart, march arm in arm with women that are marching in that direction. And even though as I sat with my laptop in my lap, trying to explain myself, really didn't know how. And I sent a little Facebook message to you. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> And I thought, wow, this lady, you are so special to God. And the way you just delivered all the things that happened to you and how God got you through and where you're at right now and being encouraged to start your own podcast because you heard from one of the things I said, and I always say it, just do it no matter what you know or what you don't know. You just start. When God says go, you don't say no. We're not going to have it perfect because we're not perfect. So it's like you just start doing it and then God starts showing you the things that you need to do to get it out there or the resources, the tools and everything that goes into whatever dream he puts in your heart. And it's just up to us to actually take that action step to just start out little baby step of really saying yes, starting in the mind and then actually taking that next step to actually setting it up. Nothing more makes me so excited to see women encouraged to go after those God dreams. And so I love how you have overcome and you're still faithfully putting one step at a time. We all do things afraid and scary when God has called us into something, but not letting the fear stop you is what's setting you apart. So I can't wait to hear your story telling you're on a podcast. It's called Caught the Mic. I wrote a song after his death called Caught the Mic. And so that's how that came to be. You did a little preseason one that was so cool. So you're kind of in the midst of launching that, making more episodes to be available on all the podcast platforms. If you're ready, I'd love to hear your letter. You call them the letters. This is you storytelling. Yeah. So the letter is a piece I shared on that first Mm -hmm. kind of pre-episode. This piece is actually called The Vow. And I'm giving this to you as a gift because this is going on your podcast before it goes on mine, unless, well, my editors get it up here (laughs) soon on my my site, but literally have not shared this in a, in a major way. I, smaller circles are growing into bigger circles, but it's, it's really about pain. I was in words. I whispered out of pain. And really just how the enemy will grab that and take advantage Mm -hmm. of it. I wanted to share a couple truths that I have come to know to be true. In Psalms 34, 18, it says, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. And also Psalms 56, 8 says, You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle, Mm -hmm. and they are they not in your Mm -hmm. book. Yeah, I love that. In seasons of my life, I've been embarrassed to share because I feel like I'm 17 testimonies in one body. Can we spread this out a little bit, God? You know, give somebody this section or that sec. This is too much for one person, one body. I could tell you that when I chose to see him and hear him and come to know him even in a new way, 
because that's that was rooted in me young, just to know to look up when I'd stop being stubborn and and stop fighting this, trying to do it on my own. He delivers. He really does deliver. He wept with me. He held me. He's loved me through it. His love really is unconditional. It's just so much, uh, it, it's such a better existence than the wishy-washiness of trying to pl- place man there or false identities there. And so yeah. I just want to encourage whoever's listening that it's not in vain, your story mm-hmm. and your pain. And if you can get to that point, that leap of trusting and surrendering, he'll just he's going to reveal himself to you in a new way. And uh, that's been happening to me. It is still a little scary. I take it a step at a time. I have good people around me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, And you know what? If you've lost much, Mm -hmm. you have a responsibility to live much. And so uh, that's what I do now. The grief I've known now endears me to a strong sense of living. So I wrote this Mm -hmm. called The Vow, and I'd love to share it with you all. Yeah. Okay. Stood silently, staring into a coffin that should be a stranger. Feeling claustrophobic, gasping for relief. See, they paid last respects, but I paid with a promise. I whispered pain-filled words over the remains of a man forced to escape this messed up world. A face that won't smile at me on the side again. I won't hear that commanding tone, don't mess with my sister. A fierce protector, I felt I left unprotected. Left him alone, John Doe, on a cold metal table with a bullet to the side from a faceless stranger. And torturous thoughts made it impossible to stop a deadly vow from going from my spirit to my lips. My swollen eyes eyed his tender face, and it looked like he was in a deep sleep, looking so peaceful. But I glared at that shiny metal box and whispered under my breath and into the pit of hell, Let me hurt. For the rest of my life, I want pain, and don't release me no matter what I say. I begged for a dance with darkness, desperate for pain I could grab because an abstract hole of heartache wasn't concrete enough to carve from my spirit. And I asked, please, just let me hurt. Physically or mentally, I don't care how, just never release me. Just like that, I released a vow, and it would take decades to break free. And it might not make sense to you, but I wanted punishment to surround my pain. And so grief and warped beliefs melted together like bad chemistry. And they formed a black seal over my heart, forming my penalty. And my words were eagerly received by the depths of darkness. And what was the crime? A stranger opened the door to a word I knew but had never felt called grief. It's like a burning hell on earth that left me an empty shadow barely existing on the brink of insanity. I even pleaded for an accident to end me, rationalizing that a perfectly timed accident wasn't exactly suicide. My identity was twisted. It clung to a mortal instead of Jesus. And days morphed into weeks thrown away. And I concentrated constantly on his face, living in shattered memories and ravaged dreams. And it was a life stuck on rewind and play back, rewind, and play back, rewind, and play back. I was desperate to protect memories a killer couldn't kill, and I would never bury. I had unintentionally made my brother an idol in whom I found my identity. D's sis, that title was me. And so who am I now? I cried out graveside, yanking at grass. 
And it took two decades before I paused long enough to hear God's response. And here's what I've learned since that horrific loss. We didn't all lose the same thing or the same one at the same time, but in one way or another, we all know grief. Grief's common denominator is the collision of what we knew with a new we never asked for. Am I the only one that's known internal flames so strong they feel like an inferno that keeps you alive just to burn you? Angry at a world that has the audacity to continue while one stands alone fighting to survive a hurricane. But here's what I know to be true. Pain combined with isolation is a devastating recipe and it creates an ulcer. A dark place capable of manipulating God's plans for his most favored creation. And his heart weeps when we wander like zombies in a half-alive existence. Don't kid yourself. That's not living. You can't fight alone working on your magic time machine to go back and fix the past that you still try to live in. There are seasons we don't feel holy. We feel like we're filled with holes. To weep in a language that no one can understand. But I know personally the great translator, and he understands our groans and our tears, and he speaks hope that our souls long to hear. I surrendered the hate and the anger devouring me, and he exchanged my depression for a sense of peace and trust that's forever changed me. We won't always know every word, every sentence that becomes our story, but God uses a pen that corrects and erases and he fills our blank spaces with hope. He's the hero at the end of our story. His blood has been exchanged for your sin and your wounds. You can be restored by your maker and he specializes in you. Let's leave the wise in the lap of his sovereignty and God will lead you out of any hell that you've made home. His blood has been exchanged for your sin and wounds. And you'll be restored by that maker, your maker, that specializes in you. He'll redeem and repurpose your pain and reclaim your true identity, not the false appendage that's been duct taped to your heart for too long. Let him take your hurt and your pain, making them battle scars, making them your limp that cry out. You fought like Jacob. Our losses and our gains will be weaved together, making a quilt called a testimony. And it'll lighten your load so that you can see the door that's got a cross for a handle. Open it and you'll find your healer. And he set aside all appointments to meet with you. And he'll write a new chapter in your life book. He's an author that doubles as a surgeon and he'll fill your veins with power surges that purify an existence once toxic and it cost him. But the same power that resurrected a savior is available to resurrect your life. Let him revive dreams you've grieved and thought were gone. He's reserved your place in a lineage of fighters, a legacy rich with stories like mine. Join us, a family of sinners pulled from bondage, now redeemed, repurposed, and recycled. Jeannie, that was beautiful. Wow, those words straight from the heart. Oh, thank you so much for sharing all this. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute honor. Thank you so much for listening today. I trust that God has encouraged you through this message. For more information on this ministry and to access free downloads, please visit my website at jamieelizabeth.com and sign up. 
You can also find me on Instagram and Facebook at Jamie Elizabeth She Speaks Life. That's J-A-Y-M-E Elizabeth She Speaks Life. Until next time, my friends, I pray God reveals himself through your own life story.